0: You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. We're going to take and focus our attention on verse 4. Uh, this morning, uh, kind of slowly working our way through the, the prologue, uh, you'll see why we're focusing our attention, I think, on on, verse, on just verse 4, uh, but we're going to read uh, the entire prologue. So if you would, stand with me as we, we honor the reading of Scripture together. Upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you just bless your word, bless this time. Do a tremendous work in our hearts and our lives, in the life of our church and use this to even bless the world around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. We started this series, and, and we, like John in, in this gospel, are focusing our attention on the, the person of, of Jesus. Well, it, it's true that, that in this gospel, there's no birth narrative. It's also true that John does introduce the reader to the person of Jesus in a very real and unique and profound way. We've seen at the onset that Jesus is God, and God became flesh. In other words, right from the onset of the Gospel of John, we see that God from eternity past, before the foundation of the earth, was with God. The Word was with God. And God was determined that he would become flesh to redeem fallen humanity when the time was perfect. Yes, Christ became flesh, and the significance of all of this is that he came to redeem you and I from our sins. I have been reading J. Grisham Machen, the book, Christianity and Liberalism. It is a, a classic It's a short book. It was like it was written yesterday. I would highly recommend it. He said this about liberalism in his day, equally true today. He said, it will be said, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. The assertion is often made. It has an appearance of godliness, but is radically false. The point that Mason goes on to make is that the Christian life is very dependent upon doctrine. Just a few pages later, he says this. If any one fact is clear on the basis of this evidence, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based upon it, not upon mere feeling, not upon mere program of work, but upon account of facts. In other words, it was based on doctrine. I think that Machen here hits the nail on the head. Christianity is a way of life, but not a way of life that is divorced from the message. It is the message that Jesus Christ died and that he died for me, and that radically changed me. My life, the way I live now, is dependent on that message. The fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again, that is doctrine. You hear those on the modern-day uh, liberal side suggest that Christ's words should be emphasized or the Sermon on the Mount or the, the red letters in the Bible, right? There's, there's a whole group of, of people today called red-letter Christians. And well, this does, like Machen says, have a, an air of godliness, right? It, it does seem very pious to elevate the, the red letters, Jesus, above the rest of the Bible, right? After all, it is Jesus. The problem is that we cannot pick and choose which part of God's word to elevate over other parts of God's word. Jesus' words that we have in the Bible are actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John writing those things several years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The reason that we can attribute those sayings to Jesus with absolute confidence is because of the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that the authors were, were carried along and, and moved by the Holy Spirit so that what we have in front of us is actually God's word to us, whether it was written by Paul or Peter. If it is words that are in red or not, we can be just as confident that this is God's word to us. Those that claim to emphasize Jesus' words over the rest of the Bible are saying that Christianity is about life, that Jesus came to tell us how we should live and how that is best. They say that everything else in all of Scripture then is to be interpreted in light of Jesus' words. I think that is just a clever way to say what is really important is life, not doctrine. And it sets up a false dichotomy between the two because, there's, because in reality, the way in which we live has its origin in what we believe in doctrine. Think about it this way. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read the Great Commission. And there the disciples, right, all believers are to be witnesses throughout the entire world as to who Jesus is and what he came to do. This word witness here is an interesting word. We actually see it in the prologue of John. It's actually, the Greek word is where we get our word martyr from. The the Greek word actually sounds like the word martyr. And the word doesn't only suggest that somebody is to die for something, but the faith of this person, right? The, The testimony is absolutely true. And the belief that this witness has in this Testimony is so certain, is held so deeply, that they would be even willing to die for it. That's where the word martyr comes in. It's about the testimony. Here's the point to be a witness is to be certain of the one you are a witness for. That is doctrine. And the life that is produced by God in the heart of the Christian witness is because of that certainty. It's because of doctrine. The more certain we are, the better witness we are, the more our life is changed. Now, I bring this up at the onset here because in our text we read the phrase, In Him was life. It would be easy to latch upon that phrase and, and to move and, and make it mean something that it really doesn't mean. And perhaps not not purposefully, but to, but to draw a wedge between the life that we have in Christ and doctrine or what we believe about him. You see how he could read in him was life and suggest that when it comes to the pages of the Bible, it would be prudent to elevate Jesus' words and actions over, say, James or Paul or even John in him was life we must not forget that what we have here from the onset of the scriptures are actually the very words of Jesus himself I've said this before but really our entire Bibles ought to be read if we're read if we are going to be accurate It's all the word, God's word. It all finds its origin in Jesus. Another thing here about this this phrase, when we see the the reference to Jesus being life, and that he was the, the light of men, we need to ask ourselves, why does John choose these words that he chooses here? Really, as we start reading the Gospel of John, it becomes obvious to the reader that John chose words that were extremely important to him because he's going to use these words over and over and throughout the Gospel. In fact, life and light become somewhat of a, a theme that goes throughout the, the Gospel. Just take and draw a connection with how the word is used here at the onset of the Gospel in verse 4. And then how John uses it at the end of the gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. There we read, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. This actually tells us a great deal about what John is going to do in the gospel, doesn't it? In fact, what he says there in chapter 20 has great bearing on chapter 1, verse, 12, verse 4, where we're told that in him was life. The word life there can't mean anything we want it to mean. It means what John wanted to mean. It isn't some moralistic statement about the quality of life that one has when they're following Jesus' teaching. But this life that is in Christ can be yours if you believe in Him. So really the word life and light, for that matter, are a great theme throughout the book. If you remember, we entitled the, the series that we're in, The Gospel of Light and Life. Drawing from these words here, but not only here, throughout the book. In John chapter 14, 6, we read that Jesus is the source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In in John chapter 5, verse 40, we see that those who refuse to come to Christ for life. But then in chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says of, of those who do come to him, to them I give eternal life and they shall not perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. A famous verse that is often memorized, John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the soul. Of course, this is just a, a sample of of the places where this word is used in the gospel. Uh, It's actually found uh, 35, about 35 times in the gospel. And if we add uh, the more, uh, if we broaden it and add the verb uh, to live to it, it becomes about 50. We're going to look at what John means by life here this morning. And the next week, we're going to take and look at uh, the word light as we get into verse 5. So as we uh, take a look at at life and what John means as he's getting to this, we need to look at really three aspects of of John's teaching concerning life. First, we need to look at at physical life. When John says that in him is life, he's talking about physical life. To say that that Jesus is the source of life should take the, the reader back here to the opening verses of the Bible. We said this before that, that even the opening words of John's Gospel should draw our attention back to Genesis. The word uh, "logos" or "word" reminds us of how God spoke the world into existence. The Word of God creates. I also find it quite remarkable that in Genesis chapter one verse three we read that God speak that God spoke and there was light, and that in John we read that it was through him that all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made, and he is light. In him was life. There was not anything made that was made without him. When we read this, in the Gospel of John, our our minds ought to be drawn to the life that went forth out of God. God spoke, and there was life. So we can say that that physical life comes from God, but it comes through His Word. It comes through Jesus Christ. I don't think that that's a far reach to say this. I think it's it's pretty obvious that John is, is drawing the reader's attention to the creation narrative. It is perhaps even more obvious when we get to the, the second chapter of Genesis when we read that the Lord made Adam and fashioned him from the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of, of life and he became a, a living being. Yes, God creates life, but he does this through his word. His breath. It is interesting. the, The pinnacle of all creation. Human being. And what did God use to create it? Did he use gold? Silver? Something very valuable? He used dust. Something that was greatly common. And then he breathed into it the breath of his life and it became a living being. Donald Barnhouse says this of how low dust is. He says, So low is the dust that God gave it to the serpent for the food of his curse. Job used the word 20 times to describe the littleness of man and his misery. It is the dust that all bodies return to in death. But we can look up to the Lord in confidence because he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Getting that from Psalm 103.14. And then Barnhouse goes on to say, Dust that exalts itself is hateful, but dust that acknowledges its dustiness finds favor in the sight of the Lord. The dust here provides a lesson. But the lesson really isn't found in the dust itself. It's found in what makes the dust alive. What God does to the dust. The breath of God. So we need to ask ourselves, what is God's breath? It's actually a little bit of a difficult question because we need to ask the question, does God even need to breathe? Or why does God breathe? Certainly, we breathe because we need to. It's how we live. We need oxygen to survive. We are dependent on it, but God is not dependent on anything for his existence. The fact is, God isn't a body. He doesn't have a body. So what we're working with here is called an anthropomorphism. What is being done here is a, it's a literary device where human characteristics are giving, given to God in order for us to understand something about God. So the, the question here about God's breath isn't about God needing to breathe like we do, but in fact that God's Spirit proceeds from His mouth. The Holy Spirit that is associated with God's spoken word some of the, the confusion here lies in our English understanding uh, of this, the English language. When we talk about breath or spirit or word, those, those words, they seem to be uh, very different and unrelated. But this isn't true in Hebrew. Actually, uh, in Hebrew, the same word for spirit is the same word for spirit and breath. Uh, ruach. It's a, it's a breathy word. In Hebrew, uh, thought a, a person's breath was associated with the spoken word. So the words are very connected. So the fact that, that we say that God spoke things into existence or breathed them into, into existence is is, very in, is a very insignificant thing. When the Bible says of the scriptures, it's, it's God breathe. We could easily say God spoke them into existence. God breathed them into the breath of life. So when God talks, when God speaks, He creates. When God breathes, He creates and produces life. The difference here, on the other hand, is that, is that our physical life comes from God, comes from God's word. Right? Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45. We have a, a marvelous contrast in, in that verse. It speaks of the first Adam becoming a living being, kind of the scenario that we talked about, right? God breathes the breath of life into him. You know what happened, right? God breathes into him, he becomes a living being. And then we read that the last Adam, right, Jesus, he is a life-giving spirit. In other words, life comes from him. In other words, we live by the breath of God. We do only by inhaling. God, or Christ, breathes out life. We inhale life. Christ exhales and gives life. The point here is that we are his creature, and he is our creator. There is a a tremendous distinction. Life comes, for us, comes from God. God gives it through his breath. And what we're talking about here is, is physical life. But of course, that cannot be the end of our discussion concerning life. We need to turn our attention to, to spiritual life. To understand that the theme of life, we need to understand that John does mean physical life. Yes, in Christ was life, physical life. But there is more. In fact, what John intends here, by using this phrase, in him was life, goes far beyond physical life and he's talking about spiritual life but I, I think it's hard to talk about the spiritual life that is available in Christ without talking about the physical life first certainly you'll see that I think in a minute John is talking about Christ's role in creation but this is, this is the, the foundation for spirit, the spiritual interpretation of the, of the word that John lays out through His gospel. When John says that in Christ there is life, it is clear that John is saying that the physical life is just the start of the life that is found in Christ Jesus. And John draws our attention at the onset to the fact that physical life has its origin in Christ, but then as he goes on, he begins speaking about the spiritual life that is found only in Christ. I think that the correlation between the two is clear. Just as Jesus is the source of physical life, he too is the source of spiritual life for all those who believe in him. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That text can't be talking about just physical life. He's talking about spiritual life because he's talking about a relationship with the Father. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. In him is spiritual life. And I think what is really important here is how the scriptures describe the physical life that we have apart from the apart from the spiritual life that is found only in Christ. Let me say it again, a different way: to understand the importance of the spiritual life that John talks about, we must recognize that apart from it, we are dead spiritually. Even though we're physically alive, we can be spiritually dead. Alive, physically, but dead spiritually. And it seems like very often these days we hear Christians offering us Jesus and their big pitch is how Jesus Christ can make your life better. If you have a struggle, then Jesus can fix it. Often this is done with a person's personal testimony or a story of another person. The person was a drug addict, had marriage difficulties or some other thing in their life that brought them to the point where they they came to Christ and he fixed their problems and their pitches. If he fixed my problems, he can fix yours too. And while there might be a, a certain amount of truth in all of this, we shouldn't overlook the fact that the greatest need, the greatest given need isn't in these other things. No matter how real and how important they might be at the time, the real need is that there is spiritual death, and what we desperately need is life. I remember a, a story by, by John Stone Street. He, he talked about how that that show, Extreme Makeover. He said one of the big problems with that show is. Is they, they would go and they would talk about this family that had all these problems. And then they would just go and they would take this house and they would drop this big house right in on top of it all. Their problems disappeared? No. But now they had a big, nice house. What we desperately need is not a big house to cover up our problems, what we desperately need is somebody to deal with the problems. I've heard a lot of well-meaning Christians talking in circles about spiritual death. For instance, uh, Zane Hodges focuses on the fact that when you see a a dead person, you recognize that there is no life in that person. But you also realize that there was once life in them. And because uh, of this fact, we cannot say definitively that the spiritually dead person is destined to to hell. We, We don't know. There's this kind of a theology that just talks about spiritual death. It's, it's not really death, right? This princess bride kind of, uh, not dead, but mostly dead kind of thing. It's just, it's just a mess. And it's not the way that the Bible speaks. The point in, in speaking in terms of spiritual death is to make the point that without Christ, one is as unresponsive to God as was the dust of the earth before God breathed his spirit into it and made it living. The spiritually dead person cannot respond to God. That's the point. Just as the dust of the earth was dead, no life. You can do an experiment when you get home. I mean, there's are farmers, some of you. You know, you can go play with dirt all day long. doesn't come to life. We can draw pictures in it. We can put water in it. We can mold it and shape it. We can do all sorts of things with clay, but it isn't living. The dust of the earth became living when God breathed into it. Spiritual life is just the same. The spiritually dead person cannot respond to God. Dead people don't respond. But But you see how people might want to talk in circles here a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, death can't mean death because, uh, I mean, a person's got to be able to respond. They they can't be unresponsive to God, can they? The answer of the Bible is definitively yes. Dead people do not respond. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, we we read, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice here, when he says you, right there, you were, were dead, he's talking to the people that he's writing to, the Ephesian church, the believers there who were not dead spiritually or physically, but who used to be, I think for Christians, it's easy for us to forget the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins before Christ made us alive. I think this is why he reminds the believers here of this fact. And it is for this reason that we must be reminded also, because we have a tendency to think we're better than we are. That we're, that we were more capable than we really were. There's a little reality check here as to what life without spiritual life is really like. It's being dead in our sin. What is being dead in our sin? It's walking in our sin, following the course of the world, following the devil, who John will say later, who actually is your father, who is the prince of the power of the air. We walked with those who are disobedient. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and our mind. And then Paul says... We were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, we were so disobedient. What we deserved was God's wrath. His judgment on sin being poured on us. Like the rest of mankind, we were... Spiritual death, that's what it is. Object of wrath. Jonathan Edwards painted a picture of of us hanging above the pit of hell on a spider's web. Children of of wrath. The only thing that could save you is, is God reaching down and grabbing you. In other words, we are dead and unable to respond to God, and this position that we were in was by both nature and by choice. Grasp that here. You chose that lifestyle, and it was also by nature. In our natural state, there is nothing that we can do to improve our situation spiritually. One commentator said it this way, that apart from Christ, no man has ever breathed one breath toward God, nor had one spiritual heartbeat. Think about that. Dead in sin. This is why one must be born again. The idea of being born again is receiving a new life from God. It's like God creating life from dust. It has nothing to do with the dust, but everything to do with the breather. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5 makes this clear. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God in us produces life. We're going to see this over and over in the Gospel of John. In fact, in the prologue, if you just go down, verse 13, who were born, right, born of God, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Remarkably clear here. Producing spiritual life in you has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God who does it. Now, when we keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2, we realize that this all happens through the avenue of faith. So we're made alive, and then we respond to God in faith. How do you respond to God? You've got to be living. And you do that in faith. Something that something that faith comes before the new birth, right? They're being kind of technical here, and they're talking about logically speaking that that faith has to come first. You have to have faith, and then you're born again. But think about this: that would make faith a, a, a merit. It would make something in a notorious work because it is something that we did, and then that thing that we did, right? We had faith, we believe it was rewarded with spiritual life. Spiritual life is not a reward for something you have done. It is only of God's grace. God gives new life, one responds to it in faith. One other thing that comes up here about spiritual death is that that is, is corruption, spiritual corruption. And that is that although we are are all dead or were dead spiritually, this does not mean that we were all in the same place when it comes to our corruption. Harry Ironside illustrates this when he writes of three instances in the life of Christ. He says this, quote, The beautiful little maid, the daughter of Jairus, had been dead only a few minutes when the blessed Lord reached her father's house. But she was dead. She was lifeless, fair to look on, lovely and sweet, no doubt, in the eyes of her beloved parents like a beautiful marble statue. But although there was not the corruption that, was, that might have been there, she was dead nevertheless. Turn over to Luke's gospel and you will find that the blessed Lord came to the village of, of Nain. They were carrying a young man to bury him. He was dead perhaps a day or two. This young man was dead longer than the little maid But life was just as truly extinct in her case as it was his. Then you have the blessed Lord at the grave of Lazarus. The sisters told him not to roll back the stone because their brother had been dead for four days and was already offensive. Corruption had set in, but the Lord brought new life to that man. I think the point that Ironside is making here is that For one, to be dead spiritually, it might look different in different cases. There might be one person who is dead spiritually, but is greatly moral. He's even applauded for his ethical values, and his ethical values and his morality might even line up with the scriptures. And another person might be involved in the most horrendous of all activities, But Ironside points out that both are dead in their sins apart from the life-giving spirit of Christ. So there there might be degrees of of corruption, but just because one person isn't as offensive to you, that doesn't have that offensive odor to you as another person, doesn't mean that they are in less need of Christ's life-giving spirit. All are dead spiritually and in need of divine life. So please understand that just as physical life comes from Jesus, spiritual life does too. It comes from Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the life of the world. And our only hope is in him. But then we get to the, the third point. And that is eternal life. And we need to say a couple more things here that is going to help us really think about the way John... Uses uh, the word life in the gospel. And we've mentioned this already, but I'll say it again. And that is that the life that Jesus gives is not only a quality earthly life that can be lost, but it is eternal life. And eternal life cannot be lost. Just think with me about this for a moment. In the moment we believe In Jesus, we receive receive eternal life. The same life that we will be living with God for eternity. So the question then is, what is eternal life? Well, it is the life of God. Not that we're going to become a God, that would be preposterous. But it's sharing in that same life, eternal life. And if life could be lost it wouldn't be eternal. For one to say that we have eternal life in Christ and then turn around and suggest that we can lose that or lose our salvation doesn't really make sense. Have you been given eternal life or not? If one were given life and lived for thousands and thousands of years, if one were given eternal life and then lived for thousands and thousands of years and for whatever reason, their life was taken, it wouldn't be eternal life. Here's another way of looking at it. If God said that you would have life in Him and it would last 2,000 years, and for some reason, something happened in that first 1,500 years, whatever it was, and you were cut off, then God didn't give you what He said He would give you. If God says that those who believe in Him have eternal life, Then they have eternal life. I I think when we start understanding eternal life, then we need to to understand the the next part of this, and that is that that God has also given us life that is meant to be uh, abundant in our present circumstances. Like the question when does eternal life start? It starts now. Right? We saw this in our study in Philippians a few years ago that. The joy in the Christian life is a joy that does not depend on our circumstances. In Christ, there is joy. In, uh, we mentioned this a few minutes ago, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the fullest, or some translations, more abundantly. One of the saddest things to see is a miserable Christian one that constantly complains about their circumstances and is always just miserable because of what they're going through. I'm guessing that you probably agree with that. It's sad. It's sad for Christians to see this. It's sad for people who are not Christians to see this, to look at somebody, or even non-Christians understand that, that Christians are to have joy. They're supposed to find great joy in their lives, and they're supposed to then, in turn, be a blessing to other people. But a miserable and complaining Christian is not a joy to others. In fact, they're just a downer. Think of Psalm 23 for a moment. Just read the first couple verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, Why do you think that Psalm is such a a loved Psalm? I'm guessing that most of you pretty much knew it. You could probably just quote it, or at least the beginning part there. I think that it is so beloved because it's a picture of the abundant life that one has in Christ. The the one where, the, the one that isn't miserable. They're not complaining because the Lord is is always with them. He's always there. He's guiding them. He's nourishing them. Always having their best interests in mind. It's a wonderful perspective on life. Why would we be miserable and complain when the Lord is our shepherd? When we are His and He is there actively caring for us? If we complain and we're miserable, then this must mean that we have a a shepherd that is shirking his responsibility. I hate using agricultural uh, illustrations, uh, especially in a room full of people who know these things more than I. But I I have heard it on, on good authority, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that sheep do not eat or drink while they're lying down. Now think about that phrase in the psalm. He makes me lie down in green pastures. If the sheep is, is lying down in the greenest of pastures, that means that the sheep isn't going to eat there, even though the grass is right by its face. If it needs to eat, it's going to get up and go eat. And I think that the meaning here It's that the psalmist says that our our shepherd, Christ, makes us lie down in in green pastures. It means that he is able to satisfy us so completely that we can be in the greenest pastures and we can lie down and not have want for anything more. We have no need to get up. No need to go eat. And when we need a drink, he leads us beside the the coolest waters. We have no need. We don't yearn for more. Christ is there. In fact, Christ is life. His physical life, the source of that, is found in Christ alone. He's also the source of spiritual life. If we're not for Christ, we would be dead in our sins, continuing to store up wrath for ourselves. But in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have spiritual life, eternal life, And the more we think about the life that we have in Christ, the more we realize how abundant that life actually is. How he cares for us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, we do not fear. Why? Because he is with us. That's abundant life, isn't it? The life where Jesus doesn't leave us, he doesn't forsake us, he's always there. But he isn't there in just some abstract way. Jesus is with you. You know, it's not a clever saying. (coughs) He cares for us in such a way that we're actually not in need of anything else but him. Christ himself completely satisfies. That is life in Christ. Life in Christ is a life where Christ satisfies every longing. And as we go through the, the gospel of John, that should be our prayer. That, that we find life in Christ. That the source of our existence is Christ. Our, our spiritual life. We're not dead in our sins and, and objects of God's wrath because of what Christ has done for us. That our life in Christ is an eternal life. An inheritance that starts now, and that Christ himself satisfies every longing. What a beautiful picture of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the life that it is in Christ Jesus that we find life, that life has value. it is in Jesus Christ that, that we're not destined to be objects of, of wrath, to pay, our, to pay for our sin. But Jesus Christ dealt with that on our behalf. That he paid the price for us. That in him we have life everlasting. Eternal life. It starts now. Lord, I pray that those in this room would find that Christ is all satisfied. Would find you. This is crazy. Our lives Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to, to learn more about Bethel Church, Church or Church. find other resources, Church. please visit Church. our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.